folks, and welcome to another episode of the Leadership Tales podcast. Today, I'm joined by Dan Barker, who runs an organization called Halcyon based out of Washington. And when you hear the story about Halcyon, the background, it's an incubator for social impact uh, businesses. And it's it's a really, it's an interesting one to, to go through because for me, the learnings that we get from working with incubators is huge. But then to put us an impact focus on it and say, so how do we operate with different businesses to get the funding, the growth, the governance and the leadership into there? And how do we build those types of organizations? Then some of the stories and some of the information you get from Dan today is is, is powerful in there. Um, I'm so keen for you to hear this and uh, so keen to hear what you think about this, but I'm desperate to get in myself and see Halcyon at some point. So enjoy today's episode. Hey, Dan. So, Dan, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Yeah. Glad to be here. Great to have you on. Uh, for the listeners, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself, dig into your past history, tell us a bit about how you got here. Sure, yeah. So I serve as managing director at Halcyon. We're an incubator and investor in early stage impact-driven companies from across the globe. And our goal is to make uh, impact really the future of business and, and having impact at the core of how business functions, uh, really the reality for uh, our future, because we know that's what's needed to make us more prosperous, more equitable, more sustainable uh, moving forward. Uh, I got here through kind of a roundabout way. Um, I actually started my career as a researcher, uh, focused on international development and global health. Then I moved on to, you know, from the world of ideas, I had the chance to work with really smart people who had the best ideas, honestly. Um, mm -hmm. But in my experience, many cases, PhDs really undervalue what it takes to make those ideas happen in real the real world. Uh, but I saw how some of those failings um, in real time. Wanted to think about where I could go to get some of those strategy skills, things about like, how do you actually get this brilliant idea and see it realized in the real world. I went to grad school and decided to go to the consulting route. It was a skill set that I thought would be valuable. Um, and that's actually links very neatly back to how I ended up at Halcyon. Uh, quickly realized within consulting that I had actually a very limited uh, attention span for things that I was not interested in. Um, so I, <laughs> I, was, I was lucky enough, you know, after a first uh, kind of slog of a project, uh, which was not terribly interesting to me, uh, to be able to navigate towards more social impact projects, which was fantastic. And one of those projects was actually running a pro bono engagement between Deloitte and Halcyon. And so I actually was able to run that. And that was my first exposure to Halcyon and was really thrilled by that. And you know, after three years, three or four years at Deloitte, wanted to think about how I could do this kind of intersection of the private sector and social impact full time. Uh, and so moved into the world of corporate social responsibility, uh, first at BlackRock and then at MasterCard. Uh, and at MasterCard, I really got to sink my teeth into uh, kind of another full circle moment, I was responsible for supporting research that focused on financial inclusion, economic uh, inclusion, uh, future of work, and how we could translate that kind of research into actionable insights that could influence 
uh, folks who are actually building. Uh, so whether that was folks at MasterCard or um, others um, building technologies and, and solutions to, again, with the full focus on economic and financial inclusion. And after you know several years of kind of testing the, the big uh, corporate model of social impact, decided that I wanted to go back to the startup ecosystem. And uh, was, Halcyon actually wasn't on my radar, um, but um, through a chance lunch and conversation, actually trying to recruit somebody to a nonprofit board that I'm on, ended up actually back here in this seat and really excited to, to lead our programs here at Halcyon. Amazing. No, I love it. There's so much I could dig into there, but I want to go back to a previous conversation we had because your family influences were were large in there as well. So a degree of fighting the family influences and going your own path. Yeah. yeah. I would almost say that it's almost in my DNA, somewhat, so to speak. I, I was born to Guyanese immigrants in New York City. Uh, my mom um, was, was and is a social worker, a licensed uh, certified clinical social worker. I grew up seeing her engage uh, with her clients. Uh, she worked in, mostly in nonprofits focused on uh, supporting uh, the formerly ho- homeless, uh, mentally ill, mentally disabled uh, with supportive housing. Um, so running uh, residential programs for the, the first part of my life being a single parent meant that I spent actually a lot of time um, in some of these residential facilities, which I think is uh, fairly unique for you know, a six-year-old to be um, in that kind of uh, environment. But just seeing the, the care and sort of the, the way that um, she engaged with that, that population. And then that's actually where she met my, my dad or, or my stepdad and he was doing street outreach, um, so actually working with people who are who were uh, unhoused and, um, and and living um, in the streets of New York uh, and bringing them into the, the system. So I've got it from both sides um, yeah. and spent a lot of, as I said, my childhood and adolescent years in residential housing facilities for the formerly homeless, mentally ill, as well as uh, for folks living with HIV AIDS and in need of supportive housing. I think it just was a way in which I didn't even realize just demonstrated the humanity of everyone and how no matter what walk of life or what privilege you think you're coming from, that there there are circumstances that can be out of your control um, and the need to show compassion and, and empathy. And that's something that I always say that it, I'm very lucky to have parents who are much better people and much, much better humans than I am. Children <laughs> 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 uh, kind of live up to, to, to their um to their example, but you know, as part of that and seeing how much it took um, to to really pour so much uh, into people who were uh, who had a lot of needs, um, I, I kind of committed that I would never do that kind of work. I would never, certainly, never do social work. Um, and in, you know, the jokes on me because now we run a, I run a residential program. It's <laughs> a very different population. I'm never, never. Oh, I am. Um, <laughs> You know, I, I knew that I had an interest in international issues. Obviously, my family from being from outside of the U.S., so international development was, was an interest. I thought it was going to be more of a policy wonk. But, yeah, in, in some ways, it, it, it is a full circle, for life circle uh, uh, to be in this role. Um, again, I'm not, I can't claim to have the, the level of impact that social workers do. Um, mm. but it's really truly God's work that they're doing. Um, and I don't know that I, again, I'm not a good enough person to do that kind of work, but it is, 
the, the focus on social impact is certainly something that I've been exposed to since the very beginning. And I think you do yourself a disservice, but it is natural. You know, my father and work he did, even my mom, the work, you know, you always look and go, wow, I could, I would never have had the patience. I would never have had, but actually it's amazing how much we absorb of their lives and their attitudes in terms yeah. of how we bring ourselves to, to that. Fascinating. So tell me about the strategy to execution piece. Cause when you were talking about the PhD and the, the, the you know, the, the ideas bit, for me, I, I'm a full-hearted believer. I've got so many ideas, but actually yeah. getting them to any sort of final product is is always an issue. What was your experience there? Tell us a bit more. Yeah, I think my experience was working with folks who, again, really had, you know, we're looking at the evidence, we're coming up with really interesting solutions and thought that that was the the most critical part. And in many ways, that is a critical part, coming up with solutions, looking at the evidence, um, and coming up with the big ideas uh, is super important. But I saw an undervaluing, particularly in academia, of how, of how you actualize um, those big ideas in the real world, whether we're doing, you know, thinking about a new solution for community healthcare in rural India, or a new solution for economic development in uh, a community in sub-Saharan Africa, there are a lot of nuts and bolts um, and ways that what you envision sitting in New York City uh, as a, a great solution just are not going to, it's not gonna turn out uh, the way you hope for it to turn out uh, in, in those markets for all sorts of reasons. Um, and it's something that in hindsight, I realize in the private sector because you have more of that feedback, rapid feedback loop. Um, you constantly are testing, right? And actually seeing what's happening in real time. And if you don't do that, you don't exist anymore. Um, we don't have that in academia and particularly in some of the bigger nonprofit institutions. You can r r run down a path for, for five years and realize, oh, wow, this is actually isn't working in the real world. Um, and you can do that um, without necessarily having the same level of feedback and accountability that you would have to if you were um, doing this for profit, which you know, also kind of led me towards this idea of how to explore what I was thinking of as more sustainable models that had that had more of that direct feedback loop. Um, I don't want to make that sound like I do not believe in public or philanthropic investment. Um, mm -hmm. I. I'm not one of these people who will tell you that the private sector is going to be the solve for every social issue. In fact, I think the the role of government and and the NGO or nonprofit sector is is really important. In many of these public goods conversations, um, but it, I did want to be able to leverage more of that learning from the private sector to realize some of these grand visions. For, for me, it's it's the same for design thinking. What we're talking about here is feedback loops, MVPs, you know, minimum viable products, prototyping, experimenting, testing, um, and a lot of that is organisations who have profit and have funding uh, enables to do that. So a lot of what you're doing now in Halcyon House is about enabling, incubating some of those ideas and uh, and working with that. So tell us a bit about Halcyon House because it's. It's got an interesting background, and there's little things about the, you know, what houses, what buildings you're working in that I was fascinated about. 
Yeah, yeah it's, it's fascinating. So Halcyon, uh, as an organization, and, and, that, and that's what we're called, inherited our name from Halcyon House. Halcyon House is a historic property here in uh, Georgetown, Washington, D.C., built for the first Secretary of the Navy, uh, Admiral Studdard. Um, she acknowledged, you know, who built this building, as, who built many buildings in this area in Washington, D.C. It was built by slaves for uh, this admiral um, at the really the start of the American experiment. And so we've got a storied history, you know, just, just starting from that genesis, yeah. right? There are many, many iterations. Uh, we were lucky enough to have a co-founder, Dr. Sachiko Kuno, um, who purchased this property and really wanted to create an inspirational space for other founders. Uh, she's an amazing founder in her own right uh, after exiting her company. Uh, wanted to give back in this way. Um, and we believe she, she was successful in cre certainly creating an inspirational space. You or any of your listeners uh, uh, are in Washington, D.C. would love to give you a tour because it is uh, pretty fantastic. Uh, and where we started out was uh, in 2014 was actually bringing entrepreneurs from across the world to, to live and work here. Uh, that's our residential program where we got our start. And uh, yes, our founders actually do live in the, in the house uh, in this incredible space. Uh, for 14 weeks, getting access to a variety of supports that kind of focus in around four areas, you know, getting the business fundamentals. We all know that um, the, the nuts and bolts that businesses need to work out, figuring, figuring out investment readiness and really taking a broad approach to that. That is uh, looking at the variety of financing options and tools that might be available to our entrepreneurs to support the scale of their ventures and their impact. Uh, impact, and most importantly, because as I mentioned at the beginning, we are focused on impact-driven uh, startups. Um, so that's how you define, measure, and tell stories about impact, because uh, all three of those are really important. And finally, leadership, uh, and that is a big emphasis for us. Thinking about that journey from founder to CEO, each in our residential program, uh, each of our fellows, as we call them, are paired with leadership coaches so they can actually work through some of these issues. You know, many of them are thinking about how they're growing their team, what's the kind of culture they're trying to set up. Uh, and increasingly, we're thinking about governance and ethics. Um, mm -hmm. We cannot assume by just having a social mission that that means that all of the governance and ethics things are going to be taken care of. Uh, we've had some, you know, unfor some unfortunate examples of why we can't make those assumptions. Uh, I'm sure you've watched the Theranos uh, yeah. documentaries and series. Same thing with with WeWork and we crashed. We've had some pretty uh, clear examples that just having uh, a nice mission is not is not enough. Um, so all of those things are really important. And then uh, what kind of undergirds all of that is the community that we build among. Uh, among our fellows and uh, I'm actually not a founder, right? So I don't, I can bring resources, I can corral support, but in terms of understanding the day-to-day -day of what's happening, it's really that community of a network of founders together uh, that's able to, to support each other um, and to be frank and honest about uh, what they're doing. Um, so that's the, the core of the program that, that I run. I should mention that for our incubator, for any of our programs, we don't take equity, uh, which mm -hmm. we think really important. Uh, and we are serving uh, many underserved founders, and this is going to be critical to their own wealth generation in addition to the impact they're going to have uh, and don't uh, take equity uh, at this stage. Um, mm -hmm. 
we do, you know, developing out of this residential program, have developed other programs that recognize that everyone can come to Washington, D.C. for 14 weeks to, to live and work here. Uh, and I should have mentioned that our residential program is industry agnostic, region agnostic. Folks can truly come from anywhere as long as impact, whether that's social or environmental, is at the core of the revenue model. We've developed what we call intensives, which are shorter programs um, and are differentiated in that they're more focused around a specific issue area, a specific demographic and or region. So for instance, this year we'll be running intensives, one focused on climate resilience in Latin America and the Caribbean, another focused on ag and food tech uh, across Africa, really thinking about how you can leverage technology to address some of the food insecurity challenges. Uh, another program for tech-enabled organizations uh, from the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, and the last one is actually focused on entrepreneurs from the greater Washington area uh, who are from and are serving historically disadvantaged communities. Um, so you see that the, each one of those takes on a different focus and so we build the program around them. Uh, and then finally, recognizing the needs that we saw from our founders um, develops three investment vehicles uh, to really close some of the gaps that we were seeing in this, at this very early stage. We're looking at pre-seed and seed ventures. So we've got the Halcyon Fund, uh, which is a $5 million fund, which invests exclusively in ventures that have come through Halcyon uh, or any of our programs. Uh, we've got our Halcyon Angels, a group of accredited uh, angel investors who invest in Halcyon Ventures, as well as other impact-driven ventures that are sourced by a team. And finally, a micro-loan fund. Um, and that fund is for our U.S.-based ventures, really giving them access to that friends and family around that many don't have access don't have access to closing that gap and you know because we have de-risked them uh, we're not taking collateral we're not looking at credit scores uh, we understand uh, these founders really well so uh, kind of these different financing me mechanisms allow us to support um, our fellows and our ventures so much we could talk about and mm -hmm. I, I I'm, I'm fascinated by a couple of areas particularly that I go into here so one is the business fundamentals, but what you're doing is you're bringing together so many different cultures, backgrounds, you know, just the, those groups. I'm, I'm interested in terms of the, the almost the international blend and how that plays out in some of the stories that come out about how you coach and work in there. Yeah. yeah. You started off, as I understand, that you would, Bray, say, bring 12 people from Saudi Arabia together. And then there's a, a real mix of different cultures, different processes and backgrounds into yeah. this. I'm fascinated about how that affects the f business fundamentals and cultures of those organizations. Yeah, yeah I mean, and the, 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 everything's super contextualized, right? And yeah. the program that we, uh, and the residential program, and this remains to date, really brings anyone from anywhere. So the next uh, cohort, which begins in just a couple of weeks, uh, we'll have folks from eight different, uh, eight ventures from eight different countries. And so we do understand that uh, business fundamentals are, are different in terms of the, the various contexts where, where folks are based. What we try to build in um, are some of the elements that are common, you know, 
financial modeling, everyone's going to have to do that. Uh, maybe you'll have some different accounting standards based on your jurisdiction, but that's going to be relatively um, similar. Similarly, thinking about the cores of, of how you're going to build teams. We understand there'll be a nu nuances in employment law, um, but there's still be some core characteristics. And then also when we think about customer discovery and sort of the key elements and how you get to know your, your customer and develop that product market fit, um, there are some key tactics um, that we know that we can leverage uh, for each of those. So that's how we incorporate it and try to find what the common denominator is. And then for those things that are more nuanced and co context-based, try to build support around the founders um, to give them some more of that direct subject matter expertise. So whether that's connecting with a mentor who's going to provide that one-on-one -on -one support, an advisor who may come in and just drop in for office hours and, and give some feedback. Um, those are the kinds of things that uh, we do to, to be more specific when we need to. I, and, uh, you know, as a, as a design thinker and a, an entrepreneur, I'm going, wow, you, the insights that you must derive going in there. It's one of those ones where you could want to dive into that to explore. So it must be fascinating. But also just thinking where design thinking and product design is going, it's about the, the extreme users. And you're gathering extreme users together in a lot of ways to, to, to work that up. So, yeah. yeah. I want to pick up on the impact as well because... Yeah. Defining impact. We're going through ESG at the moment, and we're thinking about becoming a B corporation. Um, and again, it's it's this piece about how you talk about being at the core of your business model and how you differentiate that. So, tell me a bit, a few examples, maybe just to help the listeners understand what you mean by that. Yeah. Where we start out is really talking about their theory of change, right? Which is not a new concept. It's uh, actually a pretty a traditional model, but I find it is actually really helpful to have founders really clearly articulate uh, in, a, in a succinct way what's the problem that they're trying to solve in what context, the activities that they're trying they're doing to, to solve that, um, their expected outputs, outcomes, and then that vision, right? And the actually the most important part of that exercise is that underneath each of those areas and the connective tissue between them is our assumptions. Mm -hmm. uh, and laying out what those assumptions are uh, is really critical and helping people define what their impact is. Um, and, you know, are they making the right uh, and informed logical leaps there? Um, they, one of the examples that I often use uh, sort of at the start of talking about impact measurement and why it's so necessary is that when we started off with the, uh, along the, the journey of digital money, for instance, and they say this because you know, I spent the last few years very much focused on financial inclusion, it was an assumption that all digital money is, it's, it's always a good thing. And by, by and large, digital money has been a, been a good thing. Uh, and financial inclusion has been a good thing. But I have a, a great, a good friend, Evelyn Stark, who I've often heard her say that in order to get access to something like a payday loan or to online gambling or to predatory debt, you're, you have to be financially included, right? That's what we're building on top of financial inclusion. So if you do that without, you know, particularly looking at a credit product, without appropriately giving the information at the right time to folks so that they understand what they're getting into, what the repayment is like, mm -hmm. and what the consequences are like of not being, uh, of not repaying, then you could be in a circumstance where your goal of offering credit to maybe a smallholder farmer or someone, a small shopkeeper, uh, small shopkeeper in a developing uh, city could actually be something very judgmental or harmful. Mm -hmm. uh, that as a, the case in, um, in Kenya, where 
uh, folks were getting access to credit and even for small dollar amounts, dollar amounts not fully recognizing what the pay schedules are like or what the ramifications are not paying back and being blacklisted for having a one or two dollar balance, right? Which hmm. is not something, not the consequence that we want of financial inclusion. So it's really about laying those things out. And then, you know, it's not that that theory of change is going to stay static, it's similar to what we were just discussing. It's going to be something that's iterated on, right? And those assumptions are going to constantly be tested and changed um, so that you understand what the impact is that you're having and continue to use that as your North Star. Love that. So it's almost Lafley's play to win concept. What needs to be true, yeah. the assumptions piece, what needs to be true for this to be successful to so testing out? early on the assumptions is what you're doing yeah uh, we have a whole another section on play to win as a former deloitte uh consultant is actually a framework we use quite a bit mm, i love it no we've been using it we uh, absolutely i mean part of it is is getting your head around i think this is what i love about what you're doing is you're getting people together to share iterate and presumably they share their business stories across this group as well so they've got yes. multiple different variations and that's part of getting your head around it is, is incredible i want to just pick up on just another area you talked about which is leadership in there because again leadership in a social impact inclusion way it's almost you're holding yourselves to some higher benchmarks than you would in other organizations so how do you how do you operate and work in that space It'd be fascinating to hear yeah, so there are multiple facets that we pull. As I mentioned, we have leadership coaches, which I think are really mm -hmm. critical. They're all certified um, leadership coaches who work with our fellows directly, um, which is a fantastic resource that, that we have. We give them a little bit of a framework, but really allow them to address the issues that they want to tackle um, in, directly with their coach. Uh, what's always interesting about that is you have at least one or two in any cohort. It's like, ah, I don't really don't really believe in that. I don't really need that. Um, and off, more often than not, um, folks come out um, really valuing that experience. Um, sometimes people aren't ready for, for leadership coaching and, and, and leadership coaching is not therapy, but I think there are some analogies. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's the same thing, right? If you're, if you have to, there has to be some level of self-reflection in order to, to, for therapy to be useful, I think some same thing with leadership coaching. Um, so that's one mechanism. We all, we also have a, a few sessions um, that where we focus in on leadership coaching, sort of more of our skill series approach. One led by Kate Goodall, our CEO and co-founder, really thinking about as you are building the culture of your organization. What is it? What is that culture that you want to have, and how do you embed it? What are the rituals that you um, that you create? How do you embed that in hiring, onboarding, and offboarding? Right? There's all of those things. These founders are really lucky in that they get to choose. Right? They are they are determining what the culture is going to be. Um, it is it's their venture and theirs really to make that decision. Obviously, there should be some participatory <laughs> participatory elements here, yeah. but. At the end of the day, they are the leaders, and that's, I think, really, really great, um, but also daunting, um, particularly as they think about growth. And then there's another element that we do, which is peer case consultations. So really, again, leveraging the community. Uh, the founders come. We give them a methodology, how you actually work through 
this hour, hour and a half with, with your peers, but one of the, the fellows comes with a challenge and they're really leveraging the collective intelligence of the group. Uh, and often those challenges are the people related challenges, right? The, uh, we know who to go to if we've got a challenge on you know, a particular element of the technology that we're trying to build or a particular element of design. Uh, there are specialists in that. We are less often giving people the tools from a, a people leadership perspective and to know where to go that, uh, there. So uh, using that collective intelligence of the community of their, co of their fellow fellows, as we say, uh, is something that has been really powerful in answering questions like, how do you have a flexible culture where you have both accountability, but also not you know, the rigidity, rigidity that you see in, in many corporate environments? Um, how do you honestly learn to let go, which I think is one of the hardest parts on um, that founder, the CEO journey for um, the entrepreneurs that we support. Um, because when you have built everything from the ground up and been part of every decision, letting go um, and, you know, it's, it is a blessing to be able to, to be in the position mm -hmm. to hire, but it's also a challenge, I think, for many folks to learn how to, to make that transition. So those peer case consultations are, are another way uh, that we get folks uh, engaged. Uh, so we've got kind of the, those elements. And increasingly, we've been thinking about governance and uh, most recently, I've been very lucky to work with David Porteous uh, and his new venture at Interval to, um, as they're coming up with new frameworks and how early stage companies should be thinking about governance. Um, you know, we've been able to, to leverage some of the learnings that they, they've developed uh, in the most recent cohorts, which has been really fantastic. And it's an evolving conversation that we've seen. Yeah. We've seen whole companies get billions of dollars and not have a real board, right? With an external board member. Yeah. Uh, FTX is a great example of uh, the a failure of governance and a failure. There's there's so many failures. We could spend a whole podcast talking about that. Oh, yeah. failures. Well, um, failure is a good thing, but it depends on the scale and the impact. <laughs> that that governs piece is something that I'm curious and, and interested to dive a little bit more into. You something that when you're running a program like this, you have to balance out uh, is what do you provide that is in demand, right? And I would say at the top of that list, everyone wants to talk about investment. Everyone wants to talk about how to get money completely understand that is the biggest bottleneck for for early stage ventures you know it's it's a little less sexy to talk about what your governance structure is and, yeah. and particularly for a founder who's just out there trying to build they don't really want to think about like oh that sounds like bureaucracy uh and so how do you balance that with like giving some folks that something that we know will be of service in the long term but maybe isn't the sexiest thing in in the moment and how do you frame it in the right way and uh, calibrate it. So it's actually relevant, right? Talking about a full-fledged board and lots with lots of policies, procedures and uh, Robert's rules, like that doesn't make sense, you know, for somebody who's um, a year into the, or, or two into their venture, uh, but there's still governance considerations for them to have, particularly as they fundraise and think about bringing on new folks into uh, so that that's one of the areas where I'm really curious to do a deeper dive on and and see how our curricula evolves in that that area. Yeah, I love that, and also probably massive learnings for just generally outside into the world about how we do governance yeah. by having that hot house and the incubator to to learn. So, so it links to a question I've got in my head, uh, which is about how you measure all of this, how you measure, and how do you track 
people have gone through. So when were you founded? How many years have you been going now? So it'll be nine, it's nine years this year. So 2014. Uh, so we're on the cusp of our 10 year anniversary. Um, you know, we, we track me- metrics that I think are similar to many other incubators and accelerators in this space. Uh, we look at the survivability rate of, of our companies. We look at uh, how much they've raised, um, how much revenue that they've uh, been able to make. We also look at how many lives they've impacted because we've got so much diversity uh, in the kinds of companies that we support. We uh, ask the founders to define, again, how they're measuring that impact, then give us those, rely on them to provide that, those numbers. Um, and so those are the core metrics. And for us, it's also key to track uh, who we're supporting. Or we are really proud of the fact that over 70% of the companies that Halcyon has supported are founded or co-founded by women. And also nice. over 70% are founded or co-founded by people of color. That is, is you know, critical. We, we know that um, those communities have viable um, solutions and often more capital efficient solutions and just are not. And everyone knows, has seen the statistics that, that are abysmal in VC uh, in terms of how much capital is going to, to women-led companies and, and uh, to communities of color. We're very proud of like, really flipping that on, on its head and, and almost having the inverse of those numbers in many ways. Uh, you should be massively proud of that, uh, Dan. It's, I mean, we I could talk and talk and talk, and and probably I've got listeners who are going, "Why didn't you ask this question on this?" As we go through, so uh, I'd, you know, when, when we get to it, I'd love to ask where people can find out more about this. Um, but before I do that, I want to end with three questions, and it'd be interesting for me just thinking about your humility about your parents, stepdad and mom and how you are in this, just what you've learned and what you've picked up in these. So the first question is, what's the the one small memorable moment that shaped your leadership career? Yeah, there's so many. Um, but when you ask this question, one that really jumped to mind is an example from when I was an undergrad and actually an, an RA. And it's it's fascinating how much leadership uh, skills I learned as an RA, but uh, I had a really fantastic mentor and boss at the time, uh, Daniel, also named Daniel. Um, all the best leaders are named Daniel. All the best. <laughs> um, <laughs> watched him actually go through a really difficult um, sort of just personal situation uh, and seeing how he was still able to lead a team. Well, you know, being authentic, but also um, still demonstrating leadership while dealing with something so personal. I just uh, really reflect on sort of that example of leadership and sort of that balance that, that he was able to bring to that situation and something that um, I think remains my back, back of my mind uh, yeah. when things are, you know, when, everything, when sh- all the shit is hitting the fan, so to speak. Um, you know, how do you still maintain um, leadership in those circumstances? Yeah, there's a real integrity there, isn't there? You know, there's a transparency, there's humility, um, and there's a vulnerability around that, and then keeping yourself stable and working there. I love that. love that example. So the second question is, if you had one thing you could disrupt in leaders today, what would it be? Yeah, I think, and this is maybe particular to the space that I'm in. I, know, I actually don't think that's actually it's true across leadership. The the ego-driven nature of so much leadership. Uh, and I know we all have egos. Right? That's, that's not to say get, to get rid of ego, but that being at the center of how folks lead is 
can be so damaging and seen. And I've seen actually great examples of the opposite. Um, you know, in my, in my time at Massacre from uh, Ajay Banga on down to working with folks like Nicole Lindsay and Marla Blow, really show, demonstrating what it's like to um, to lead with service in mind um, and service to your team, service to the folks that you're trying to support. Um, that that version of leadership, That's if we could have more of those examples, um, I would really, um, I think that would really disrupt uh, the, the norms that we have and how people lead. I've always said I don't have a tattoo, but I've always said if I had one tattoo from the Stoics, it would be Ryan Holiday's ego is the enemy. Because um, <laughs> I, I do I strongly believe that. I love that you, you picked that one in there. So I love that. Uh, final question. One leadership habit that's non-negotiable for you, what would it be? One habit. It's something that's very, I think, tied to what I just said is the thing that I always tell my teams is that I wanted us to take our work seriously, but not to take ourselves seriously. So the habit that, uh, that I try to implement is just honestly kind of laughing my, at myself routinely <laughs> um, and, and using that as a way to, to pull down some of the ego. Um, and uh, sometimes my team takes that a little bit too far and also la- laughing at me. But you know, I honestly, I, I, I'm really open to that because I think it's, that is something that we just uh, being in a position of any position of, of power or authority uh, can very easy to go down this path of, of being so serious and uh, kind of believing uh, in your own um, in, in the authority that's given to you yeah. really as a, as a privilege, but it, it can be something that um, turns the, the other way. Um, so that ability to laugh at yourself and, and have that kind of community uh, uh, throughout the team is something that I uh, is a habit that's non-negotiable for me. Amazing. Love that. Laugh at yourself. Strong believer in that. And with our British humor, that's an important part because we've laughed at ourselves for years. So, you know, it's a good thing. Uh, Amazing. Dan, huge pleasure to have you on today. If people want to um, know more about Halcyon and the work, where would they find you? So we are at halcyonhouse.org. And Halcyon is H-A-L-C-Y-O-N. And it's going to be a difficult one for people to spell. And also Halcyon inspires on uh, Twitter, uh, and I am D Jason Barker on Twitter. Amazing, Dan. It's uh, I'm desperate to come and get, take you up on that tour around and see the Halcyon uh, the work you do. But uh, appreciate you coming on and sharing your story. And I'm sure many people will want to to more and dig, to, to know more and dig in with you on that. So lovely to have you on the uh, podcast today. Thank you so much. Well, folks, that was Dan Barker. Dan, amazing episodes, amazing learnings. Uh, I loved his answers to the questions coming up the uh, the end, particularly, you know, the ego piece around disrupting leaders, and I'm a strong believer in that. Uh, but also just the, the memorable moment about, you know, when you're going through tough times and how a leader can inspire to, to provide that balance and care for everybody else, even though they're going through the tough time. Um, Halcyon, amazing organization. Um, the people we work with are working in there and supporting them. And again, the founders seem to have done some amazing work to, to transform it. But I love the background and the story and and how the red thread through that, out that organization is something that is making demonstrable change in terms of uh, whether it's women or people of color in terms of owning those businesses. So uh, I'm working successfully. Love that. 
Hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please leave a, a rating, a review for the, the podcast. The ratings and reviews are very much about how we drive the message of Dan and the likes of those people who turn up on this podcast to do that. So I'd love you to do that. And I look forward to welcoming you in another episode of the Leadership Tales podcast very shortly. Mm-hmm.